Welcome back. I'm Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. Apologies to our listeners. We took time off in November. While my producer was on a film project in Cuba, I turned my attention to completing a novel. I dove in two years ago, but failed to finish. This past month, I wrapped it up. Well, almost. What's it about? Planet Earth. I'm pitching it as an environmental thriller. A race against time. Truth or fiction, you ask? You'll have to read it and find out. And speaking of stories, in this week's episode, we bandy about the idea of what it means to design and embed a national narrative. Here to explain the concept is Nick Fung, Managing Director of Black Dot, a Singapore-based media consulting and advisory firm. Nick has worked as a journalist, a presenter, and a public commentator. Since leaving journalism, he's dabbled in politics, served as a member of a local think tank, and contemplated what we'll call the evolving Singapore narrative. But more on that in a moment. First, a look at Nick and his personal journey. I asked him to share a bit on this as we kicked off our conversation. Nick, welcome. It's uh, wonderful to see you and speak with you. Good to be here. Good for you to make time. I know we've tried to set this up a couple of times. I'm glad that we finally making it happen. Yeah, persistence pays off. So, uh, so listen, I, I guess before we get started, just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, uh, I was born in Singapore, studied in Singapore up until university, went to uni in the UK. Uh, and uh, started my career as a journalist. Uh, I, I was with the uh, National uh, Daily Broadsheet, The Straits Times, for, for nine years, uh, and then uh, switched over to the broadcast side of the house, where I've been in and out in total of almost six years with, uh, with MediaCorp. Uh, and I've done you know full range writing, I've uh, presented on TV, I've finished uh, the last stint as, a, as an edit- editor running small teams of journalists as well. Uh, and since then, I've moved to the other side of the equation. I've moved into the communication sector, set up a, a small strategic communications consultancy that is growing to a decent size right now, um, and also done a few other things in between. Uh, I've been a nominated member of parliament. Uh, I, I work at a think tank uh, on a part-time basis where I focus on security and global affairs. Uh, we started a market research agency recently that started doing some fact-checking, which is very interesting in the fake news, um, information influence operations side of the house. Uh, and in terms of my own personal interests, which we've talked a little bit about earlier, um, you know, I'm interested in sport, I'm interested in defense and security, uh, very passionate about culture, and, uh, and good storytelling, narratives, uh, whether they, they, they function in the communication sphere, the news sphere, or in the social side of things. Is that what drew you to journalism initially? This idea of the narrative, of the story, or was it something else? Well, we, we always joke that to be a good journalist, first and foremost, you have to be a busybody, right? In, in Singaporean terms, you say you're very, very capable. You have to want to know what's going on, uh, you know, before other people know. You, you have to be very curious and inquisitive. So I think that's, that's a little bit more about what drew me to the career, you know, being plugged in, having the, the authority to talk to people, anybody that you wanted, and ask whatever questions that you wanted, and getting the information and news before other people, and then packaging it in a way that, you know, they would be able to, to process and absorb it as well. So it's both um, being interested in the story and also the storytelling side of the house. Uh, I like writing, of course, which helps. Um, and I think that uh, that's something that, that's keeping me in the communication sector right now even. What, what drew you away from journalism? Was it just the idea of been there, done that, on to other things? Or was, you, was there a calling into other aspects, maybe more policy-specific? 
Uh, I think it was just a natural evolution of uh, career path opportunities that came up. Uh, but since moving into the private sector uh, in the consultancy space uh, as, as it pertains to communications and strategic communications advisory, I think we're realizing that um, communications plays a critical role in, in just about everything, storytelling uh, throughout society, in the business front, in politics, in global affairs, in diplomatic relations, um, and, and, in, and increasingly, you know, obviously, in, in terms of how uh, countries grow and develop. Uh, the role of the narrative, the role of the story uh, is becoming increasingly critical. Uh, in terms of giving people identity, giving people a sense of direction and mission. Um, and if not managed properly, it creates, you know, crises and issues and challenges that then keep people like me in business, right? Because obviously there's a lot of call for, for what to do when, when the story goes wrong. Um, so it's something that, that keeps me very, very uh, engaged and very interested and, uh, and still trundling along. You raise an interesting point, which is in these social media crazed days where everybody's trying to craft a persona and project it according to whatever that is that they're trying to project. Um, we sometimes forget that nations do the same thing. Countries, organizations, corporations, everybody creates a form of narrative and does with it a variety of different things. In some ways, as a nation, though, you have to be a little more consensus driven. Uh, it's not just one party unless you are a dictatorship. You've got to have a multitude of different insights and inputs in order to shape that narrative. Can you tell us a little bit in those terms what Singapore's storyline has looked like in the last 30, 40 years? I think the, the analogy you draw is very, very interesting, and, and maybe I'll spend a bit of time on that. I think critically, when you start on a micro scale, if you talk about an individual, uh, a personality, or even a corporate brand, uh, projecting that brand and, and gaining what you, you would expect would be a hope, hopefully a, a, a appreciative and a positive uh, response or following in the public sphere is critical uh, to the success of most brands, of most individuals, personalities, organizations. Um, but how do you do that? Well, and we often, uh, we being communications practitioners and professionals, we often say that it has to be tied to a certain authenticity. Uh, you have to organically try to be an attractive or positive response uh, attracting kind of entity, whether it's an individual or an organization or a brand. And then you project it in a way that's not fake, that's not false, that's not manufactured, that's not artificial. Um, and, and as you mentioned with social media being so ubiquitous and so pervasive in society, it's very easy um, for, for people to detect uh, inauthentic behavior, uh, fakeness, mm. uh, and in that sense, you know, balancing that, creating that, and at the same time staying true to an authentic set of, of core values or, or characteristics or personality, um, that therein lies the, the the constant challenge for communications professionals when we when we work with clients. Um, to, to craft this brand, to craft this narrative. Has Singapore been on a multi-decade branding exercise? Have they crafted a story? Are they marketing themselves to the world? So that, that brings us to the macro uh, narrative. And uh, I think the Singapore brand is very, very clear. Uh, I think it was defined by, by the government, by the founding fathers of the country, um, who were supremely intelligent in identifying the risks and vulnerabilities and the weaknesses 
of a small uh, land scarce uh, resource, I wouldn't even say poor, it's almost a resource zero um, uh, country, uh, thrust onto the world stage in 1965. Um, and, and they identified what would work yeah. for, for, for our, our particular set of circumstances and then drove ahead with almost single-minded kind of ferocity to achieve that. And we know the narrative, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a clean country, safe, stable, it's highly efficient, dynamic, innovative. Um, and those are the things that, that, that Singapore has become known for around the world. Our airports work, our seaports work, you know, everything's efficient and, and it's a great environment to do business in. But, but it wasn't always that, Nick. I mean, back in the 50s and 60s, it was a, a bit of a rogue state, a little bit of a trying to find its feet, not sure what it was or what it stood for. I mean, the narrative was just beginning, if you will, right? Well, that's true. Uh, and again, 50s and 60s, you're talking about not the state of Singapore, mm. right? That's pre-independence. Uh, and, and that was a, a far more complex and complicated environment with the, with the Union of Malaya. Uh, are we in? Are we out? And things like that. Well, post-independence, I think it's been a very clear narrative. Um, and in some cases, you could argue that it was a manufactured narrative, but it became a self-fulfilling one because the, the country and the society has kind of grown into to that particular uh, uh, brand that we want to project, and, and very successfully so. How important is the perspective of its citizens in the ultimate formation of a country? In other words, you can throw a lot of resource, a lot of money, you can, cre- you can build amazing airports, great ports, uh, do a lot to create the right image, but then the story really only takes on its own life when there's something blown or brushed into it. What does that look like in terms of the people? I think that's uh, exactly the the right position uh, and the right point to make right now in this point of history in in, in Singapore's uh, development story. Um, Bearing in mind it's a very short story. It's only 50 plus years old, 54 years old this year. Uh, And we we really haven't grown much as a nation. And this notion of uh, Maslow's uh, uh, hierarchy of needs, uh, obviously in the early years, uh, survival, and uh, and and staying relevant and staying and building a, a leadership position in some areas, those are the core focus and and priorities for the country, for the leaders and the people. Uh, and now we've reached a stage where you know uh, I remember in SG fifty, um, not only did it mark a, a numerical uh, anniversary, uh, but it also sparked a lot of introspective. Um, and, and horizon scanning on the, on the part of, of everyone in the country, I, w- I, would, I would hazard to say, to try to figure out um, how much of brand Singapore reflects the soul of Singapore and its people, and what would that look like in the next 50, the next 100 years as well. Was that something that was uh, intentionally triggered, or was it just the fact half century, time to rethink? Uh, I think that uh, it's a little bit of both. Obviously, you know, when we celebrate a, bi- a big anniversary, people get a bit wistful. They look back on history and, and we, we, there was a lot of commemoration in 2015. Obviously, with uh, the passing of Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, uh, a lot of retrospective of, of what we have achieved as a country under his leadership and the current leadership as well. Um, but then, of course, uh, when you look back, the natural reaction is to, again, also look forward and try to say, well, what does this mean? You know, the next 50 years obviously aren't going to be the same for Singapore just from a simple reflection of how the world around us is evolving and changing. Um, but also internally, if you look at the, the maturation of the society, uh, the questions that people are asking, the topics that they're interested in, 
the influence of external voices and perspectives made much more pervasive by technology, um, whether it's mobile tech, online digitalization, social media. Um, I think we're starting to hear, obviously, a lot more questions being asked about um, not just what is the brand of Singapore, but as we, as we again, we spoke about earlier, what is the soul of Singapore? You know, Nick, on the face of it, it's almost like that beautiful runway model, gorgeous to look at in so many ways, right? Elegant, graceful, um, you know, seems to have it all, just, you know, everyone gawking and, and admiring and thinking what a beautiful thing it is. Um, it has so much to offer, and it really, in these age of rapid urbanization, is a, it is a shining example of what's possible, greening while growing. It's an extraordinary place in that way. But but it, 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 I guess as somebody who's lived here and grown up here and actually is a a, you know, a commentator on this subject. What's missing? Well, I think uh, before we get to what's missing, maybe just trying to track back a few years. You know, when people started to to question a little bit more about whether brand Singapore is that all there is to to uh, to the entire story. How do you um, mean that? Explain that. So we we had um, you know the uh, MRT system, which is a pretty good system by by global standards. The MRT is the transportation it's system. A, it's the transit, the subway system, um, uh, and it's pretty decent by global standards. But in in maybe five six years ago, it was getting a little bit you know run down, and maintenance needed to be done, and there were some breakdowns here and there, and people started to question, well, you know, is is this world-class transportation all that it's cut out to be? Because that's the first time there's been a breakdown of this scale? Exactly, and of, and of that frequency where we started to see, uh, you know, when you, in a more developed nation, obviously it becomes a bit more commonplace and people uh, are much more attuned to that. Um, but then you started to, you know, in recent years, there's been people talking about social inequality, about the, the people who are maybe not, benefiting directly from the fruits of Singapore's growth and development uh, and whether anything more should be done to take care of the, the, the less privileged and the less advantaged in society. Um, and, 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 and questions, of course, become a little bit more vocal now. Everybody has a platform as long as you have a Facebook page or an Instagram or Twitter account. Um, and I think that uh, is, is, is a good thing to, to see a little bit more of this discourse uh, it's almost part of the maturation process of a country, mm-hmm. right? If you imagine a country as a, as a person starting out as a little kid, you know, uh, without asking too many questions, listening to your parents, and now moving into uh, a phase where a little bit more self-aware, asking some questions about what does it mean to be me? What does it mean to be a Singaporean? Or what does it mean to be Singapore? Um, I, I just hope that the conversation moves. The conversation moves to a point beyond just saying, well, you know, I'm not happy with this. I don't like that. This needs to change. And moves into a phase where people take responsibility and says, you know, there's no real us and them, right? Um, there is, yes, there's the government. There are the leaders, but they're made up of people and we're all people, right? And uh, if we're going to progress and we're going to come up with new ideas, maybe we need to come up with some ideas and we need to have a discussion and we need to figure out something about how it's going to make everything better. Are, are you suggesting it's become a nation of curmudgeons, uh, people who are complaining more than doing? Is there something wrong in the psyche of the Singaporean uh, because of all the glitz and all of the efficiency and everything that has gone on? There's, there's almost something that people feel is missing, but they don't know exactly what it is. 
I, I don't think it's fair to stereotype again. So I'm not going to say all Singaporeans, you know, I'm, I, I'm not going uh, to tar everybody with the same brush. And I don't think it's a phenomenon that's restricted to Singapore. We see that in many, many different countries. But if you are in a situation where you've seen massive rapid growth in a very, very compressed period of time, maybe there is a lack of appreciation of some of the difficulties to achieve um, this kind of success. Mm. Uh, quite often when I hear people talking, they'll say that the difference between a younger generation today, I, I hate the word millennials, but you know, younger people today uh, versus uh, people from my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation, um, there is a certain lack of appreciation of how tough things were. In the 50s, in the 60s that you mentioned, um, things were a little bit tricky, and even in the early 70s, uh, largely because when you're born into the modern city-state of Singapore that most people know, you know, who, who, who come through the country and see it today, it's really hard to imagine uh, a life that's a little bit more challenging, a tougher environment. Um, everything works, everything's clean, everything, you know, is efficient. Uh, and we, I find myself taking a lot of things for granted as well. So when people ask questions and are unhappy with where they are today, they may not have the awareness of the history and the background of what's come before to be able to contextualize some of their questions. You raise a really interesting point. My, my grandparents were of the um, uh, Depression uh, generation, and they spoke of the Great Depression and the shortages and just how hard it was. Uh, and, and, you know, for me as a young child hearing this, I had no understanding whatsoever because it was 40, 50 years removed from my time. Um, but here in Singapore, it's time compressed. It's the idea that in proximity to one generation to the next, everyone is experienced virtually the country since independence. So therefore, you would think people are a little more aware than they might be living in a place like the U.S. where, you know, it was more protracted over 100 years versus 40 years or 50 years. Well, that's a, yeah, that's definitely an interesting perspective. But sometimes when you have, uh, you know, obviously a slower period of growth of, of development, you might not realize it because you don't see the changes so starkly. Uh, but we're talking about a generation who was maybe born into modern-day Singapore. Mm. Uh, I was born in 1975, and I would say it was, it was pretty modern then. You know, uh, uh, everything, I, I, don't, I cannot claim to have lived through any kind of hardship, you know, on, on a social or national basis, uh, Asian financial crisis and global financial crisis aside. Um, but I think it really is this notion that, uh, you know, and maybe a sense of self-entitlement too, that when we grow up, uh, and we are we're born into a place like this, then we expect things to always be better. And the Singapore narrative has always been predicated on we have to be better than others because we are smaller, we are poorer in terms of natural resources. We have uh, you know huge disadvantages that are against us. We you know we are a, a, a tiny island. Uh, what are we going to do to survive, to thrive, and to, to do even better? Mm. And it's all predicated on we've got to be exceptional, we've got to be special. Um, and when you put that kind of pressure on yourself uh, and, and you've created this brand as accepted globally, uh, it's inevitable that, you know, as and when something isn't quite perfect, you, you set yourself up to be criticized. You know, some of the great mythologies speak of those who 
gain hubris, mm-hmm. uh, a lack of humility, this feeling, you know, Odysseus, uh, you know, calling out against Poseidon, saying, if it weren't for me, Troy would not have fallen. And as a result, he's cast out to sea for a, a long journey and barely gets home. And at that point, you know, if you, if you take that same idea of the persona and you apply it to the nation state, um, is there the possibility that uh, because Singapore has been so successful in such a short period of time, it's now in a situation of hubris and its very ego is actually getting in its way of progressing. Well, I, I don't think that, uh, and I guess when we talk about Singapore in this particular sense, we, we're talking about the leadership and maybe the, the government. I don't think for a moment the, the government uh, would uh, ever uh, lapse into that sort of complacency. I think we are highly attuned to the fact that everybody is out to eat our lunch. Everybody, if possible, would want to knock us off our perch. Nothing personal, but it is a globally competitive environment. Everybody wants to be the global financial center. Everybody wants to be a hub for investment. Everybody wants to um, be involved in the Belt and Road project. Everybody wants to have inroads into China. Um, These are things that Singapore does actually have. uh, And it's not something that's going to stick around just because, you know, we're nice guys. Nick, let me throw out an idea, and maybe this has global a global perspective to it, which is, is that narrative that the world's been working against, the idea of growth at all costs, the narrative that Singapore and everybody else should, should perpetuate? In other words, aren't we moving into a new time when sustainability, and perhaps might be a better story, a more conducive story to our situation than growth or being the best of everything, the top of everything, the wealthiest, uh, whatever the case may be, how prepared would Singapore be to be to change that narrative in, in that drastic a way? I think Singapore, uh, and just, this is just going purely by, by the comments from the leaders, from the ministers in recent weeks and months, uh, is again uh, very, very aware um, on, on issues of sustainability and being uh, environmentally conscious for, for a couple of reasons. I think the first one is, uh, if there's going to be an impact on climate change, on, on rising sea levels, on uh, polar ice caps melting, um, an island nation like Singapore would probably be the first to have some kind of inkling, right? When the, the beaches don't seem too beachy anymore, they seem much more ocean. Um, uh, and I think that uh, on, on, a, on a secondary note, uh, being sustainable, being green, aside being good for the planet, is making increasingly sound business sense as well. So for a number of reasons, Singapore is positioning itself to be on the forefront of green technology for solar. We're looking at you know electric vehicles. Uh, and I think that it's one of those, um, we recently announced plans that uh, you know solar panel deployment is gonna is gonna go up significantly in the in the years ahead, and we're looking at R and D investments to all these particular sectors as well. So for those reasons, I think, and our prime minister has spoken at the UN um, and in all a lot of recent speeches to say that sustainability is going to be a core facet for for the country's growth and survivability in the years ahead. Um, but if you're if you're talking about the narrative, I think this is this is possibly the interesting thing. Um, we talk on a few different bits and pieces, but what I'm interested to know what the Singapore narrative is going to be like for the next phase of growth. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we know that we have the uh, the financial and economic infrastructure in place. We have um, you know companies and organizations that are uh, are experienced and 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 have the business processes to survive and hopefully succeed in in the years ahead. Um, but what about other aspects that go into to making a country 
the soul of the country that 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 uh, you know we we enjoyed talking about earlier as well. Um, is it softer things like arts, like culture, like sport? Is it about how we treat the disadvantage? Is it how we treat the environment? Is it how we treat you know uh, animals and and um, and things like that? And that is the interesting thing to me because the first bit of the narrative, you know, the hardware, if I, if if we can refer it to it in that way, um, was easy to sort of lay out and plan. You need good planners. You need uh, urban planners, economic planners, national planners who could put and bright bright guys have been driving a lot of these policies um, to build the Singapore that we know of today. But what about the softer, the software side of the house? What are we actually going to put in place? Uh, or, or how are we going to put anything in place that will define the soul of Singapore? So the narrative phase one was almost a dictate, basically a declaration of the possibilities and potential, which were then achieved. And now you're saying the story has shifted, and so must the narrative. Or is it that the narrative shifts and then things follow? In other words, who owns the narrative? Uh, I think that... Uh that, that's actually a good point, and I, I might not necessarily have the answer as to what has shifted the narrative. I think it could be the passing of time. It could be the evolution of the demographic of people. Uh, you know, we've got you've got people who are increasingly well educated, well traveled, exposed to thoughts, insights, perspectives from all around the world. We have a very cosmopolitan society here, uh, and that naturally shifts the conversation. Um, and it's been happening over years. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to presume that it's something that we only noticed recently. I think it, it has happened over time. Uh, people moving away from bread and butter issues, uh, which remain very important, um, but starting to question about what does it mean for us as a society, as a country, um, now that we have achieved some measure of success. You know, in in the past fifty plus years uh, since independence. Um, and and when I listen to conversations and I listen to people talking, uh, I'm I'm very interested to to sort of find out: Do Singaporeans feel the responsibility to own that narrative, to create that narrative, um, and uh, or or is it something that because of the relationship, you know, in the early years of development, it will be something that we are still very comfortable to devolve to somebody else, right? Some society, you know, what, you know, waving their hand and say society or the government uh, or some institution like that. Uh, I think my, my personal view, and I'm, you know, a little bit more hands-on in that sense, is that, you know, we have, we have the ability to, to control our own destinies. It should never be devolved to anyone else. Um, and if we feel that something needs to be done, well, what are we going to do about it? If we feel that somebody needs help, what are we going to do to help them? If we feel that you know we should have uh, Olymp more Olympic champions, what are we doing to support athletes to, to contribute to these sort of things? So that's, that's kind of the evolution of conversation I like to see. So the people of Singapore might have assumed a kind of narrative dependency that others, they allowed others to be the storytellers, and as long as the story was rich and interesting, entertaining, full of action, they were fine to sit back. But you're saying that in order for the soul to shift of a country as it emerges into through its adolescence, into its young adulthood, it needs to actually start to be that storyteller. And therefore, are you arguing or would you argue that every nation at some point needs to basically assume responsibility for that narrative? Is that what you're advocating? I definitely am an advocate of personal responsibility and saying that we all have a role. Um, 
again, you know, I, I wouldn't say necessarily we have to create a, a soul. I think the soul is always there. It's just a question of whether we've come to realize what it is. We've dug enough to find out a little bit more about ourselves as a people, as a country, to study the history, talk to people, to talk to the elders, to understand, you know, the, some of the life experiences that have, have sort of permeated in society as well. And I think that, uh, you know, until we are able to do that, um, moving beyond a little bit sort of a superficial preoccupation with, you know, uh, cash, car, credit card, country club, whatever, um, moving beyond that and sort of asking ourselves slightly deeper questions, it's going to be really hard for us to, to write any sort of narrative or to play a role in any part of a uh, future narrative going forward um, if, we, if we just remain focused on, on sort of um, the, 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 the very superficial kind of aspects of, of life in society. Sometimes it takes a great orator. I mean, in, in, in my country, it would uh, Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. Or in the UK, it was Winston Churchill. I mean, those who could capture the imaginations and the minds of the people and articulate it in such a way where you felt like, I'm in. But it was spoke more to the aspirational aspects, which is not that unlike what you were saying, uh, you know, Singapore went through as well. But but tell me a little bit, you're a storyteller. I mean, we, we you've been a journalist. You, you, you're a writer. What would be your contribution to the narrative? What's your vision 25 years out for Singapore? Well, uh, I think, uh, again, you know, not to be presumptuous or anything like that, but my big thing is that I think uh, it, it definitely should be a future that is um, carved out together. I think that uh, people increasingly need to feel part of the process. More participatory. More participatory and, and not just, I mean, our government, the, the, the next generation of leaders are making a big point to say, we want to hear from you, we want, we want you to be part of the process. But people have to, be want, have to want to be part of the process too. Uh, and, and not just in the sense of, let me tell you all the things that you're doing wrong. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to do that. We, we need people to actually say, have we thought about this solution? Have we thought about that idea? that taps on the different life experiences of people. I think in the early years of, of growth, we recognize our people as an engine for growth, right? We had a workforce that was hardworking, that was going to be well-trained, that was going to be well-educated, that would drive the economy. I think now we need that same population, that same sort of verve and, and intellect and dynamism and creativity to generate ideas that will help a country like Singapore continue to evolve and, and hopefully succeed in what is becoming an increasingly challenging world. I mean, if you're talking about the, uh, uh, the, the rising powers in Asia, and you talk about the tensions between China and the US, it's going to be, I mean, not to use cliched imagery, but the seas are very, very bumpy and we're in a very, very small boat. Mm. Um, and to be able to, to steer that boat right, uh, I think really, really requires that engine of that boat, which is our people, to, to pull together and pull in the in the right direction and contribute. Doesn't mean that we all have to agree. Doesn't mean that we all have to say the same thing. I think that is actually more detrimental. But how do we have this exchange of ideas um, in a way that, you know, uh, is productive, is civil, um, and, and, and is in a safe zone where people can, can share these ideas. And at the same time, to create the impetus for people to really want to step forward and be able to do that. Um, and that to me is the tricky thing. 
you know, how do we how do we encourage people to come out to think about things, to think about what is my place in society, what is my role uh, in, in in this country, and con- able to contribute? Um, is it about you know building a greater sense of philanthropy, people taking care of people, people taking care of one another? Uh, is it about stepping forward to volunteer to do something for you know the greater good? Uh, for uh, uh, you know, uh, contributing in, in various ways to to policy inputs, for example, um, is it about building businesses to create good jobs for people, um, thinking more about others than of self. Utopia. Well, that w- that would be a a, a, a nice, uh, obviously something to see in in twenty five years time, um, but more crucially, for a small country again like Singapore, it might not just be. Uh, a nice warm fuzzy dream but it might actually be a critical element uh, for our survival you know all narratives need uh, structure uh, they all need tools of the trade you know whether pen or paper or a recorder and a microphone or even a fire uh, around which you tell a tale whatever the case you need those constructs in order to be effective in delivering a great story I asked earlier on what's missing these are all wonderful aspirational ideas of what a great society could look like. But if you were need to, if you needed to inject in Singapore something now in order to create those synapses to deliver those narratives, what would it be? What's missing? Well, actually, uh, I, I have a view on this, and I'm not sure many people would agree. But we we're all very quick to point out why uh, social media is a bad thing. Uh, echo chambers are created. Uh, horrible things are spread very, very quickly. Uh, the opportunity to 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 pass judgment or comment or criticism reflexively, you know, in, in a literally a split second, um, and the superficiality of uh, of some of the interactions. These are all the criticisms that people level at social media and the negative effect. If we come back to the original intent of social media, which was to link people up using technology and just accept it as that, I think we have that platform for great storytelling. Mm. Uh, everybody can make a video now. Everybody could do a podcast, could 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 cut uh, a very high quality uh, video product using your iPhone solely without even touching a computer. Um, so if we have ideas, if we have things that we want to share, if we have suggestions on how we could change things and improve things, we could use social media as a way to, to build uh, a little bit of consensus. And I know a lot of people are trying to do that. Um, but how do we get people away from this the reactive uh, instinct to be negative? Well, yeah, I was just going to say Donald Trump used social media and look at the result we have there. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that potentially was more of the traditional way of, 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 of how people uh, see social media having evolved or devolved uh, today. Are you suggesting that Singapore would be in a better position to make more effective use of social media because of its guidelines or its social constructs or, you know, basically the idea of personal and societal responsibility? Is, is, is that what you mean? I'm not really sure about that. I think you know our our sort of uh, laws and frameworks around social media um, pertain very, very you know in a very focused way to things like fake news and, and influence. Uh, no tolerance for it. No tolerance for that, and and obviously some of the issues that are very viewed as vulnerabilities for Singapore: sedition and 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 you know sort of tensions between uh, different racial groups and religious groups. Those are not tolerated. But other than that, you know, social media as as it is anywhere around the world is a is a pretty free space, and 
I know that there are uh, you know organizations on pages trying to spread a little bit more positivity. Um, again, I think it comes down to the to the, the the natural instinct of people. If people realize that responding negatively or spending all your time on vitriol, uh, spending all your time on on tearing things down. Uh, yeah, there, there is a certain, you know, and there's all the scientific research about how, you know, hormonally it makes people feel. Um, but it doesn't really help. Mm. And I think that if we wanted to tell a nice story, a positive story, and hopefully a successful story of Singapore in the future, um, all of us need to contribute to that mm. in, in some way, shape or form. So it's a tale of stone soup. The broth is brewing. The, the process has begun. Now everyone has to contribute something to it in order to get the rich stew that everyone hopes and aspires to. I, I think so. And, you know, and, and Singapore, for all that we are famous for in terms of the, the hardware, uh, has, a, has a very rich history in terms of art and culture and experiences. Um, and it, it would just be great. I mean, we're, we're celebrating the bicentennial, which I feel is kind of an arbitrary uh, occasion to, cel- to celebrate where, you know, the, uh, well, the British arriving and, and discovering Singapore, as it were. Um, but the history extends far beyond that and far deeper into history. And, and some of the, the commemorative events here have tried to shed a light on that. It'd be great if more people, you know, spend time to, to, to immerse themselves in that. And then from there, look at where we are today and ask ourselves as a, as a people, as a community, as a society, as a country, what, what do we want to be like building on that history and, and then sort of writing that narrative together. Um, and it's not even about, you know, creating a soul. Maybe it's about uncovering the soul that is already there. Mm. Um, but if we get too hung up in the, in the hardware, you know, in, in the economic growth and all that, we'll never get there. Mm. That is to, to be clear, I'm not downplaying that at all, right? If we don't have the economic security and, and the, the continued growth of the hardware part of the things, then we might not have a country, you know, to, to celebrate. Um, but it's come time in our history where maybe a little bit of emphasis has to be given to both sides. Mm. Nick, uh, we wish you and Singapore uh, continued success. Thank you so much for spending time. Thanks for, for having me. Good to chat. That was my conversation with Nick Fong, Managing Director of Singapore-based Black Dot. Nick's commentary around framing a national identity and revisioning the collective narrative reminds me that nation-building the world over is a work in progress. And so it is in this week's Asia Insider Minute, I reflect on the conversation you just heard and pose a few additional thoughts and questions of my own. The stories we tell ourselves. Curious, isn't it? We as humans are masters of the art of story making. Just as we design tales to project to the world who we are and what we stand for, so do nations employ similar devices to align its citizenry to a common set of ideals or principles. Depending on who's in charge, the lens might be adjusted, but short of full-scale revolution, the underpinnings of what it means to be American, German, Chinese, or Singaporean remain largely the same. As long as the nation serves a purpose, tends to the interest of its people, and strives to create benefits for the whole, the narrative endures. Now and again, a leader comes to the fore who seeks to reframe the national narrative. He or she does so first by calling into question some of the founding principles, casting them as tired or obsolete, then introducing new concepts in the hopes of shifting the collective zeitgeist. 
Hope and promise are powerful devices in the framing of the new narrative, but so are the darker descriptors of a nation under siege, in decay, or awash in corruption. Attacking institutions designed to safeguard the national interest is one of the best ways to sow seeds of distrust. Those were the 20th century methods of Lenin, Mao, Hitler, and Mussolini. Their rhetoric spoke to an undercurrent of rot and was sufficient to incite revolution and regime change. The 21st century poses new challenges. Immediate, pervasive, and ubiquitous access to information has fragmented the collective narrative. Layer in the growing prevalence of fake news, and it's hard to know what to believe or who to believe in. One person's view of what a nation stands for is another person's fabrication. Social media has the power to unite, as was the case with the Arab Spring movement, or to undermine and polarize, as is the case in the U.S. at this very moment. Singapore has oftentimes been seen as a country small enough to test new ideas and approaches and demonstrate to the world what's possible. It is exemplary in every way, but most notably in the rollout of infrastructure, institutions, and incentive structures that keep Singapore on the cutting edge. The hardware, as Nick tells us, is firmly in place. Advancing the Singapore vision, however, requires something more, something less tangible and more attuned to the feeling of what it means to be Singaporean. For this, the people of Singapore will need to do a bit of soul-searching. Once again, Singapore could prove the shining example of what it means to frame a collective vision, then carry it out. And God only knows the world, now more than ever, could use a few shining examples. That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. It's good to be back. If you don't have time to listen to every episode but want to stay connected to the many ideas and themes presented by our guests, please subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. We track Asia in transition and each week deliver new insights, point you to reliable resources, and showcase episodes on related topics. To subscribe, go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving our weekly update. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit Inside Asia at iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or comment and rate the program on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Music